This is Sharon Squassoni. I direct the Proliferation Prevention Program here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And here with me today is Dr. Hans Christensen, who is the director of the Nuclear Information Project at the Federation of American Scientists. And more importantly, he is author of the Nuclear Notebooks, which are published in the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. He's been doing this for a long time, and we're going to talk to him today about some of the challenges and opportunities that he sees. So welcome, Hans. Thank you. How long have you been doing this? Well, the nuclear-related work I've been doing since the early 80s started in Europe. But in this particular job right now, it's about 12 years, I think. I've been with the Federation of American Scientists. And can you describe a little bit for our listeners what are the nuclear notebooks? The nuclear notebooks are snapshots, if you will, of the status of nuclear forces of the nine nuclear weapon states. So every year we do, uh, we try to do, an overview of what each country is doing. Different countries have different level of activities, so we tend to, you know, have at least the U.S., Russia, China every year, and uh, we only have six uh, issues we can publish uh, the way that the bulletin works. And then we pick from the others, like, you know, Pakistan, India, they have a lot of things going on right now. Britain and France are a little more quiet, continuing existing programs. And then, of course, with North Korea, you have a lot of uh, new developments as well. So we're trying to, we're trying to balance the, the newness also with the importance, if you will, of uh, the nuclear weapon state. For those of our listeners who might not have read any of these nuclear notebooks, what kinds of things do you cover? Well, they're very, they're very sort of nerdy, of course. It's very data-intensive because they're, they're supposed to provide the public with sort of a best estimate, if you will, of the individual country's nuclear arsenals. What programs do they have underway? You know, where's their effort? What's the status of the weapon systems that they already have? Some are retiring and some are coming in. You know, how do we figure out what the status is? Rumors about new systems, uh, rumors about capabilities. It can be whether they have multiple warhead capability on their missiles or if they have moved toward two-state thermonuclear weapons, uh, etc. I mean, these types of details. And there's also a level about the policy, if you will, the doctrine, because though those, those areas are evolving all the time. And there are statements are being made about you know, how p- countries intend to use nuclear weapons, what role they serve. So there's some important nuances there. And then finally, of course, operations as well. How do countries exercise and fly, sail, test launch, et cetera, et cetera. So there are all these different activities we're trying to condense and put into one basically a notebook for each nuclear weapon state. And each one could really be an entire book. So oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, th- this is the big challenge. I mean, you know, there's always more information, and you can you can stare yourself blind and analyzing from now on. And so at some point you just have to say, enough, and, and this is good enough. So that's interesting because most people think about nuclear weapons as these super secret things that governments don't release a lot of information about. And yet when I look across those nine nuclear weapon states, which are the U.S., Russia, France, China, Great Britain, and then the ones outside the nonproliferation regime, India, Pakistan, North Korea, and Israel, 
there's a very big difference in the levels of secrecy and the kinds of information that they release. So just for our listeners' purposes, you might cover missile systems, you might cover aircraft. You know, in the in the good old days, I might say the U.S. even fielded our nuclear artillery shells. Yeah, yeah. The U.S. had a lot of different systems deployed in many different places. Yes, that's pretty different from, as you said, more contained programs like Britain and France. What are the challenges for you working in the unclassified realm to get this kind of information and? What are some of the key types of information that you look for? Understanding Mm -hmm. that may differ across countries. Well, as you say, I mean, it differs significantly uh, between the different countries. And there are many reasons for why it differs. And one, of course, is the government culture that in some countries there is an acceptance that which has been generated over a long period of time that it's okay to share a certain amount of information. It doesn't damage national security, or in fact, it's a benefit for national security and international relations that some accurate information, some factual information is made available. Other countries have a completely different view. They sort of, they think everything nuclear is just secret and they don't wanna share anything whatsoever. They can also have different status I mean, in the case of Israel, for example, they have a policy that says they will not be the first to introduce nuclear weapons in the Middle East. So, of course, they can't talk about it because then they would have said, you know, we introduced it. (laughs) So there there are many different reasons for why it happens. United States is by far and without comparison um, the most transparent nuclear weapon state on the planet. And this is partly because the U.S. has a sort of a, a right to information culture, which goes very deep in in the political system here in the United States. And it was one of the most intriguing things when I first arrived in the U.S. to do this kind of work from Europe, that I found that that the United States was much more available, much more accessible than even countries in Europe where we sort of, we were bragging that we were so open and, you know, democratic and all these things. So it was a very different reality here. But that's not to say that the U.S. is entirely transparent. There are many things that the U.S. still keeps classified. It, it has declassified total numbers of nuclear weapons it has in its stockpile, and importantly, the history of those stockpile numbers. So you can go all the way back to the beginning, see how it fluctuated over the years. They also did publish a lot of information in defense budget requests. You know, each year that goes into the congressional cycle. They describe programs, status, intentions, all this type of information that, you know, you really would hope you could get from other nuclear weapon states. They would help a lot. So that's that's sort of the best, you know, case in the, in the United States. When, when you move to other countries, Britain and France have, have declassified some information over the years, but they're less transparent about the current status and the history, ironically. We're hoping that Britain and France in the near future will begin to sort of copy the, the American practice that you, you, can, you can declassify the history of the stockpile. It doesn't serve a real national security interest to keep that secret. But once you get to countries like, like Russia and, and China, just to stay with the, the P5s, it's a very different situation. I mean, Russia is getting harder to monitor, ironically, because during the Cold War, where we had the arms control treaties that 
and we had a defense department that published information and an intelligence community that published information about what they thought the Russians had. There was an enormous amount of information about the Soviet arsenal. Then what we saw after the end of the Cold War and, and, and Russia was supposed to be a partner, we saw much of that dry up. The New START Treaty, for example, that was signed, that negotiation closed off the previous practice of the U.S. releasing the entire volume of the breakdown of Russian nuclear, strategic nuclear forces. So ironically, better relations with Russia resulted in less information coming from the U.S. government. But at the same time, there have been some really important, some might even call them devastating, secrecy laws in Russia now, which I think make even most of our colleagues in the, you know, think tank world hesitant yes. to share information. Correct, correct. It's, it's an unfortunate development, and they're just sort of stepping backwards on, on this. And not only do they do that in their legislation, making it very dangerous for people to do this kind of work if they're Russian, or, but also that statements that come out of Russian officials when they occasionally say things is very hard to verify. And, and sometimes we can see that they are exaggerated, essentially if not downright untrue. We have a current case where the head of the Russian Strategic Rocket Force has given some number about how many ICBMs they have in the force. And I've been trying to verify that going back and visiting every single site using satellite photo and checking all the sources I have. And I can't match that number. I think it's less than what he's claiming. It wouldn't be unusual to have a Russian uh, general sort of wanting to boast a little and be a little bigger than he actually is. But that's one example of where you you hear an official statement, but you can't just take it for granted. You have to go and check it with other sources that you have. So there have been many proposals within the United Nations, and especially within the review process of the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty, for the nuclear weapon states, at least the five Mm -hmm. under the NPT, to be more transparent, to make statements, to make declarations, to be consistent across their reporting. And yet you bring up this point that a declaration is a declaration, right? And it needs to be, if not absolutely verified, then at least confirmed or corroborated. And and so how important do you think the role of public estimates of, you know, the kinds of estimates that you do and that, say, for example, experts at the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute and other places at Princeton University, how how important are your estimates in reviewing those government declarations? Well, so in the the non-classified world, those are the only attempts to do that. The point being that in our intelligence community, people do this all the time. I mean, of course, they verify and check and double check and, and compare and whatever, but they can't talk about it. And in, in the other countries where they make these statements, there's, like you indicated, there's no one who can do this kind of work because in many cases you end up in jail, essentially. So ironically, what we're seeing is that the information we put out is the only venue that people in those countries have to have a conversation about their nuclear weapons. And so when we see even Russian retired admirals and generals giving public conversations to discussions about nuclear weapons, when they refer to Russian nuclear weapons, they they use our numbers. 
Those are the only ones they can use. The same thing in China. Academics, others in China that debate Chinese nuclear weapons use our numbers because that's the only thing there is out there and they have no way of doing their own estimates. So it serves that function of facilitating a debate in countries where you cannot otherwise uh, do research and, 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 and on, on, on the country's own nuclear weapons. Two more questions. One is on the changes in technology over time and how that may have helped or hurt your yes. efforts. And and then I'll come back to the yeah, last there's one. Yeah, there have been some good developments and some less good developments. I would say, you know, one of the truly amazing new development is the wide availability of, of commercial satellite imagery now. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's such a rich source of information for uh, monitoring developments in force structures and, and what have you. Of course, there are also dangers in it because you need to know what you're looking at. And countries that have these systems don't necessarily only show their real systems. They, they actually also deploy fake systems to let people make the wrong conclusions, uh, et cetera. Uh, so you have to be really careful of how much weight you, you put on it. But it adds a lot. I mean, in the past, for example, just 15 years ago, we didn't have any ability to go in and look for ourselves at what's happening in China, for example. We just relied on some, a few good sort of intelligence reports or people that used to be in the intelligence community that they would summarize something about it. So it's, it was very thin. Now there's much more open flow, if you will, of certain kinds of information. But this is also where the social, social media comes in because, you know, with the Internet and the, the sort of revolution of social media information, that flow, comes a lot of new information. And you can monitor chatter between people that are on forum where they are talking with their old buddies about where they used to be, what units they served in. You can distill a lot of information from that. But there's also a lot of disinformation. The internet is good that you can spread factual information very quickly and make it available. But you can also spread very wrong information very quickly, and it can be really hard to get rid of again. Once it's out, people remember the headline, and that's quite often all there is. Now I'm smiling because I'm thinking about Kim Jong-un's declaration that he had tested last year a thermonuclear warhead. Yeah. So that's kind of a funny example. We think of North Korea as being quite closed off and ultra secretive. Yeah. And yet, when you look at their program, there's quite a bit of information through the years of threat reduction measures that we took with them, the yep. agreed framework in 1994 that froze their plutonium program, yep. through the six-party talks and declarations there. And then these occasional statements yeah. that accompany either missile tests yep. or nuclear weapons tests. Yep. So there was a case where Kim Jong-un said, hey, we have a hydrogen bomb. Hmm. And the analytical community went to work and pretty much concluded he didn't. Yeah. <laughs> no, this is, this is the good news. I mean, you know, countries that have nuclear weapons, they, they want to they wanna show and tell. I mean, they, <laughs> that's why they have them. Um, you know, they, they need to serve a function, you know, scare other countries or, or assure other countries, depending on, on who you are. So they need to do this from time to time. Sometimes, like in the case you mentioned, leaders can get a little too excited and say things that actually come back and look pretty silly. 
when you know they don't he doesn't have to say that because you know it's pretty significant what they what they already have and are already working on so he doesn't have to inflate it to more than it is but it's true and so here comes the international community people that are active scientists former government officials as soon as they say that they go to work and then they say you know based on what we can distill from all this pool of information and the history is it likely that they have this capability and quite clearly the conclusion was no they do not now so what do they have well they seem to be working on some first stage um, nuclear warheads and possibly playing with the concept of boosting them to make them a little more powerful but taking the next step into a two-stage thermonuclear weapon would be a a leap uh, for them so so that's still many years off just for our listeners what would be the kind of strategic implications of that? Well, that would mean that you could threaten much, much greater devastation. I mean, that's just a, a, a thermonuclear weapon is much, much more powerful. We're talking about hundreds of kilotons. Even you can get up to megatons, of course, once you have that technology. So, so you could just inflict vastly more devastation. Now, this is sort of relative because, you know, of course, if you live in Seoul and somebody drops a 20-kiloton warhead on you, you're going to die whether it's a 20-kiloton warhead or, you know, a one-megaton warhead. I'm so, so the point is just that there's a, some point where it becomes sort of not meaningless, but sort of, yeah, okay, you know, you can make something that's bigger, and, but then what? I think the more important part of North Korea's capability is more about its, its capabilities to deliver the warheads. Because once you have warheads that are some tens of kiloton, you really have a capability to inflict enormous damage on cities and on, if you're good at aiming, um, even large military bases. So suddenly you, you begin to have real capabilities to inflict severe damage on your adversaries. And so, but it's a tough thing to develop a nuclear warhead, surprisingly, so that it works when it lands. And the longer you want to shoot it, the harder it is because, you know, you have to loft this thing out of the atmosphere. It's going to come down with enormous speed, and it has to be able to survive that re-entry and, you know, relatively accurate, actually land where you had intended to land. So it's a really complicated technology. And to some extent, it's kind of bizarre that, that North Korea is spending an effort, it seems, to deliver a nuclear weapon the most complicated way you can deliver it which is with a ballistic missile. <laughs> it's much simpler to build a nuclear weapon you can strap under a wing of a, of a plane or put on a barge and sail it on a container ship somewhere into a foreign port. I mean, if you really wanted to throw nukes at or hit others with nuclear weapons, there are simpler ways of doing it. And, you know, there's this element of prestige, right? Oh, absolutely. That goes along oh, yeah. with ballistic missile programs and launching satellites and yeah. all the rest of it. So. Oh, absolutely. These, these are real crown jewels for, for national prestige, like you say. Um, and all the nuclear weapon states, they, they use that. I mean, there's definitely prestige. We see to go back the last 20, well, the last 10 years even, and increasingly so over the last five, six years, with Russia. Russia has felt this need to remind other countries again and again and again about how awesome its nuclear forces are and strong and sort of coming out of nowhere there is a dispute and out of out of a, out of the mouth of a general comes this well we might hit you with nuclear weapons i mean so there are different styles in different countries uh, the united states is much more timid in a way about its nuclear weapons it doesn't like to 
boast or brag about it. It sort of says, we have what we have, but you know, we don't go out and, and rattle the sword in the way we, we see it. So it's a, it's, a different, it's a different mindset. But of course, at the bottom line, is exactly the same. You do X, we will do Y. What is your advice for young analysts who might be interested in doing this kind of work in the future? What kinds of skills, capabilities do they need? What kinds of information should they be looking for? The most important, I think, task for a young person uh, trying to get into this is to really def develop a broad familiarity with the types of information that's out there. And you mentioned earlier older agreements and exchanges and things like that. You have to reach far back once you start to develop your sort of your universe about what nuclear information is. And like you said, there is a lot of information out there, factual information. And then you have to with that in, in the back of your hand, you have to sort of venture into this big, confusing world of, of public information. And, and that's where you have to develop somewhat of a conservative attitude to sort of remind yourself that fantastic claims require fantastic evidence. And it is so easy to get caught up in headlines that say, wow, this country suddenly has this, and in 10 years they'll have this, and, and you get sort of swept away. So there's a certain, there's a certain uh, importance in when you do this work. Be a little conservative. Say, well, we'll see. Don't go for the big estimate. Don't go for the fantastic headlines. You know, double check and, and be a little more sort of critical about what it is that you're willing to say someone has. I think that's broad range of sources, different kinds of sources, and, and some sort of a skeptical conservative type of attitude to it, I think. So I think that's terrific advice, particularly in the context of what's happening now in the United States. Fantastic claims deserve fantastic evidence. Hans, thank you so much. It's been great talking with you about this. Thanks for having me. <laughs>